0: Welcome to the DNVGL Talks Energy podcast series. Electrification, rise of renewables, and new technologies supported by more data and IT systems are transforming the power system. Join us each week as we discuss these changes with guests from around the industry. Welcome to a new episode of DNVGL Talks Energy. Um, my guests today are Tim Rockel, Director, Global Energy Institute from KPMG. As well as Sharad Somani, Partner Global Infrastructure Advisory, also from KPMG. Welcome Tim, welcome Sharad. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Tim, maybe uh, we start with you, for both of you. I would like you to uh, introduce yourself uh, before we start and also explain a little bit what are you doing in KPMG.
1: Sure. Thank you very much. Yeah, so my name is Tim and I'm the director of the Global Energy Institute for KPMG. And my role is to make sure that... Um, We've got the Asia-Pacific angle reflected in all the work that we do from Houston to Europe and that our clients uh, understand what's going on in this region. So it's a two-way street. Uh, I've been in Singapore for five years. Before that, I was based in the Middle East and used to speak to Saudi Aramco quite a lot, uh, based out of Bahrain and before that in London. But my career has primarily been in the energy sector. And since being in Singapore, we've been heavily involved in the Singapore International Energy Week, um, we've now inv- been involved in five SUs, and that's 50% of them, and we're very pleased with the way that the uh, themes have developed and uh, the conversations that are going on uh, under this roof here in Singapore.
0: Right, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Sharat. could you also tell us briefly about yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, I, I lead the infrastructure project finance practice for KPMG, uh, primarily covering Southeast Asia as a market and a little bit in the Middle East as well. Uh, The primary focus that we have is uh, in the area of power and utilities, covering traditional power, coal, gas and uh, renewable energy. And we do also waste-to-energy energy energy efficiency projects uh, in in the region. Uh, The kind of work that we do is both with the governments and the private sector, helping them structure projects, uh, get get financing, and essentially uh, organize public-private partnerships.
0: Right. So having the benefit of having you both here in this episode, I would be keen that we cover maybe a little bit the importance of gas going forward in the energy mix and also some related uh, finance issues with regards to gas, but maybe also with regards to renewables. But to get us started, Tim, you just came from a panel you moderated on the Singapore International Energy Week. So it would be great if you could maybe share with us what were the main findings in that panel discussion around gas.
1: Sure yeah and gas asia kicked off today so today's wednesday and uh, during the uh, earlier part of the week we heard a lot about renewables and uh big advocacy going on in renewables, people very positive and I think you know, the fossil fuels were slightly shut out. Yesterday we saw a few more statistics from the International Energy Agency showing you know that uh, coal and uh, particularly gas is going to be an important part of the mix going forward. And If you look at countries like Thailand, here in Singapore, gas is a really important part of the mix. But when you know, the panel I was on today, you know uh, Indonesia was there and when you look at maps of Indonesia and the infrastructure that's required, there's a lot of head scratching going on because there's, you know, the, the energy capacity build out is going from something like 166 million tonnes of oil equivalent today to over a thousand in 2050. And just that they need all options. So they're going to need renewables. It's not going to get them all away. The they're going to need gas. But of course, in this region, you've got the decline of gas. So very much we were talking today about the role of the buyer. And so you've got the American producers now offering fixed prices at $6.00. Um, some, some, you know, originally it was eight earlier in the year, but that number is now coming down to six. And so people are looking at kind of what are all the options? And I think we'll talk a bit later on as well around how does gas get into the mix? How does it sit alongside renewables? Battery storage coming in as well. So is it kind of, is it kind of gas? Is it battery? But then still coal. You can still produce coal at, uh, to international standards and uh, with the amount of coal in this part of the world, you know, that's being discussed
0: as well. Yeah, thank you very much. So you mentioned uh, gas, uh, slightly resources going down in the region. We have at some parts in the region a lot of coal, but it's very difficult to finance any new coal project. So when I put that together we have a lot of investments to come for gas for the different countries here. Uh, We will have to import uh, at least in this part of the world. And on the other hand we cannot do much with the coal going on because coal projects find that difficult to find finance. Maybe, sharat you could uh, elaborate on this aspect a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think it's an interesting dynamics. Uh, I mean, one statistic that came out from CU yesterday was for the first time globally, the total investments going to power sector has surpassed oil and gas sector. We effectively, meaning that people are investing more in traditional power and renewable energy in aggregate in terms of total investments, which I think uh, will only increase going forward given the fact that there's a huge power requirement in the in this region specifically. I mean, you look at the electrification rate in Myanmar is just about 25 percent. Uh, Indonesia wants 35 gigawatt in the next five years, so it's a huge, huge requirement. Now I think what is happening is coal is getting a bit constrained, uh, primarily because a lot of banks are shying away from coal projects. That is not to say that coal will not happen. Out of the 35 gigawatt that Indonesia is talking, at least 40 percent will still be coal, but they will do a clean coal which is supercritical coal. It is also interesting to note that Middle East has done coal as well as part of the fuel diversification strategy. So we have got around 2.4 gigawatt projects under development in in Dubai as well. Uh, When it comes to uh, financing challenges, I think gas projects uh, have a challenge given the fact that the domestic gas is limited in this region. You have to necessarily have LNG terminals, LNG input terminals developed to get the financing going. And if you look at the kind of LNG contracts which were signed till date, it's a long-term Decorpe kind of commitments which not very many governments are becoming comfortable as yet. I mean governments like you know Indonesia, Myanmar, Malaysia will take some time to get their head around long-term LNG contracts which which is uh, which is in a way also prompting on the supply side, on the LNG side to look at a shorter-term contracts uh, which, which is happening and which is good news for the power sector in this region. On the renewable side, I think I would say that when you look at the strategy of most of these countries, uh, they have gas as a necessary component and all all these countries in the region are looking at 20 to 25% of their portfolio coming through renewable energy, which is a great thing because look at the renewable potential in the region, Uh, solar, wind and geothermal, there is a fair bit of potential. Solar of course is leading the way. Mini hydro, we are getting a number of projects happening, run of the river type, which are environmentally quite friendly. And given these four, four sectors kind of contributing, we are seeing a number of good financings happening. Now the interesting thing about renewable is unlike a big gas fire project or LNG terminal, the renewable projects are typically uh, smaller, looking at 30, 50, 100 megawatt kind of range, which is easy to finance. Uh, the challenge essentially in these countries is of course uh, regulatory, environmental and land related issues, which I must say are falling in place. Uh, but uh, it's not happening at the pace that we would expect. Uh, Countries like Indonesia have come out with very clear regulations around land acquisitions. There's a very clear mandate around regulated tariff for renewable. So I believe that once there are certain proof of concepts happen in each of the sectors on types of projects, then financing will come in.
0: Right. I would like to come back to the financing aspect a little bit lighter. The NVGL has just also launched the Energy Transition Outlook, and we see that gas is the... A single kind of largest source of energy also going ahead, but uh, as we also mentioned maybe in this discussion already, renewables are growing very strong. Uh, we expect that uh, the electricity demand will grow by about 140% up to 2050 due to the electrification of different industries like transport and heat, but that 72% of that electricity will be generated by renewables. So we see there's certainly a competition between gas and renewables. Uh, We sometimes call it the frenemy, the friend and the enemy. So I would like to elaborate maybe a little bit on how these two can play together, the the gas and the renewables. Uh, Maybe if you'd like to share your views.
2: I I think both have to coexist. Uh, I mean, given the intermittent nature of the renewable energy, you cannot take renewable energy beyond a certain level. I mean, typically, uh, based on some of the technical studies we have looked at, and not more than 25% of the grid can be sustained by renewable unless you bring a massive amount of storage now as you see the battery storage is still very very expensive over the next five to ten years we expect the battery storage will become competitive but gas will have to continue to provide a peaking load as well as uh, you know base load uh, in some instances going forward so if you look at a typical mix uh, the countries are trying to look at if nuclear is an option they'll have nuclear as a base load coal if you have excess and some old plants and it will continue to operate coal as a base load gas will be with the peaking load and then the renewable energy will be taking care of the, the, the uh, difference. Uh, one of the things that most countries have to do when they chart out their strategy on a portfolio of energy supply options, they have to essentially ensure that gas continues to be a critical component because it helps provide the necessary risk diversification, uh, both domestic gas as well as international gas. So, Singapore is doing that. Singapore has got natural gas coming from Malaysia and Indonesia but you have LNG terminals also developed. Uh, the second thing is renewable energy in Singapore. In fact, we are t- talking of a 1 gigawatt of renewable energy, so that will almost be 10% of our total installed capacity. So, renewable in Singapore itself, given the size constraint, is still a creditable achievement. But if you look at uh, countries like Philippines, uh, where there is huge geothermal potential, Indonesia with both geothermal and solar and mini hydro, all three together. Uh, this will continue to coexist. Mm-hmm. So, it is not either or, it is probably gas and renewable, which has to happen.
0: Yeah, so uh, this was not exactly what I wanted to talk about at the beginning, but since you just mentioned that, you also had nuclear uh, in there, and uh, I think we had a very ambitious colleague here also on uh, Sue, who was trying to uh, push that industry forward and uh, admitted that he has a problem maybe to make the right advertisement for it because there's a perception Mm. issue about nuclear so uh maybe tim what would be your view on this i mean even the japanese colleagues tell us they have trouble with promoting nuclear in japan Mm. what will happen to that industry
1: yeah i mean that came up on the panel as well today and of course you know the the kind of nuclear switch on in japan you know post uh, fukushima is still an issue so there are a number of plants now which are ready to come on more that are being uh, ready ready for approval and some of the stats that we saw today were showing that you know, Japanese imports have probably peaked, mm-hmm. and so uh, of gas because of the renewables coming back on board. So that then changes the whole dynamics as well. So you've got uh, the gas buyers uh, in in Japan looking to place that gas somewhere else because they're overcontracted. So what they're looking to do now is you know to remove destination clauses from contracts, go towards the shorter contracts at. Um, that uh, Sherrod has mentioned, but also look for destinations for that gas in Southeast Asia. So we're seeing a number of the Japanese players now looking to kind of place that by investing in power and, and other assets in the region, which I think is going to be really useful. And I think you summed it up quite nicely, Sherrod. When I think of gas, I always put the word and, mm-hmm. so after the end, so yep. gas you know, and renewables, gas and transport. Right. And the good thing is, is that here in Singapore, you've kind of got gas and talent. So you've got a number of big gas players based here. There's going to have to be a shift in the kind of skills of that talent as well. So if you look at the traditional companies, the larger companies, very good at building the mega projects, very good at dealing with national governments, very good at securing rights. If we're looking at the gas and renewables angle, very different skills. You're dealing with more, you know, smaller regional governments, you're looking at securing land access rights, you're looking at building small pipelines, and not all these projects are bankable, so you've got the kind of the talent, the negotiation side, you've got then the bankability of these projects. We know that there's money out there, but the projects aren't always bankable, so different uh, funders are looking for different things from these projects, and that's something we've been working with everyone from pension funds to private equity on.
0: Right, that, that actually leads me nicely into into my, my finance questions again, uh, what, you, what you just said at the end. So one thing we pick up uh, is that banks Insurers and reinsurers are approaching us uh, having trouble to assess risk of some of the projects coming up here in the region. And so in case of DNVGL, it's especially offshore wind uh, where they have trouble because the assessment or maybe project certification regime is very different from the markets they're used to work in, like for example Europe. So uh, maybe that's uh, a question for you, Sharad. How do you see that? uh, What can we do? To make banks, insurers, reinsurers more comfortable uh, to invest.
2: Yeah, I think a fair bit needs to be done because increasingly uh, the region is quite reliant on ECA's financing. You know, not very many commercial banks are coming and funding projects. It's not only about renewables; also the traditional projects mm. are quite dependent on exim banks coming and put uh, giving guarantees to make projects happen. Um, there are a few challenges, and I think there's an institutional framework being put together. The challenges being. Uh, most of the projects don't have a very well-defined path to development. Uh, And very, very sophisticated projects like Central Java IPP in Indonesia took around five years from conceptualization to financial close. And this is uh, something which uh, very few investors have appetite to wait for. Uh, If you look at uh, what's happening in other smaller projects, increasingly uh, they are uh, depending on either exam guarantees or some kind of corporate support meaning that the sponsors providing support. Mm -hmm. Now this of course cannot continue for bigger projects because there's only so much corporate support can be offered. Uh, Indonesia has specifically come up with what they call as the Indonesia Infrastructure Guarantee Fund, which effectively guarantees some of the sovereign obligations on on the projects, which is making some institutional investors comfortable. Uh, I I don't think that's a complete solution, but it's a good start. Uh, Then there's a new entity which has been set up is a credit guarantee and investment facility. Uh, which has been set up in uh, Philippines through ASEAN, plus three governments. And the idea is to guarantee issuance of uh, local currency bonds for projects. Now that's one market that has been totally untapped in the region, where there is no capital market support for infrastructure. There is no institutional investors who are supporting infrastructure financing. So the the pool of financing available for infrastructure projects is only for commercial banks and, uh, and uh, ECAs, Exim banks. Once you open the tap from insurance companies, institutional investors, private equity houses, infrastructure funds, and and capital markets, I think that will be a huge boost uh, to the uh, infrastructure financing. The real challenge for that is how do you get credible projects? Now, credible projects can be split into two parts. One is a good development phase, and second is good operation. I think development risk, to my mind, in the foreseeable future, will still have to rely on ECAs and uh, and commercial banks. On the operating side, I think capital markets are becoming comfortable. The business trust model uh, started in Singapore has been reasonably successful. Uh, a lot of infrastructure projects in operation phase have been put as a dividend yield play on the business trust. So that's, that's a good solution for operating phase projects. There is also a concept which has been introduced in Singapore recently, is, is, uh, is the fact that they, you can do a uh, take-out financing, meaning that once the construction is completed and project is commissioned, Uh, the takeout institution will come and buy out the banks which had funded the development. So uh, effectively that frees up the bank funding Mm. for potentially investing in new projects. The other interesting thing which we should look out for uh, is uh, privatization of assets. I think a lot of governments in the regions, particularly Indonesia, has recognized that greenfield projects takes a long time and it's a dampener on the spirit of investment by the private sector. What they are proposing is they are offering a few projects from PLN or Patamina or the road sector all the sectors, effectively privatizing existing assets, which are easy to fund because you know the operational track record is immediately generating funds. And that, to my mind, uh, will be a great opportunity for all investors and lenders in the next three to five years.
0: Okay. Um, there's a second aspect which I would like to uh, throw some light on, and uh, I'm afraid we are then slowly also coming already to the end of this episode. but. Um, We are hearing about the importance of renewables going forward. We are hearing about uh, them becoming cheaper and cheaper, especially now also in the auction system. But I am also talking to equity investors, for example, who are a little bit concerned about the yield rates they they can get out of these projects, because obviously finance has to become cheap as well. So there are some ideas uh, I think we discussed before we started recording here about hybrid projects, renewables and gas maybe to get together, so to bundle things to make them bigger, the projects more attractive. But so where is this going? Are we going into a deadlock in renewables financing because uh, the yield rates are not attractive?
2: So it's a very good point and I think we require some recalibration of expectations on all sides. Uh, I think the governments are thinking that the prices have to keep going on and the interest rate have to be very, very attractive. Uh, I think if you see last 6-7 years, we have been in a low interest rate environment for a long time, but the expectations of the equity investors have not been recalibrated. We worked on a few projects and we closed three projects in the Middle East recently, and most of these projects closed at single digit return for equity investors, which effectively means that uh, if the project is reasonably certain, the technology is reasonably established and risks are contained, you can't expect super normal returns in those projects. You know, when Thailand implemented uh, solar projects five years back, they had some very good returns. But if you look at the most recent auction that happened in Malaysia uh, on on solar, 30 to 50 megawatt, uh, mostly were single digit or low double digit kind of returns. So effectively, when we talk to private equity houses, infrastructure funds, we are uh, actually suggesting to them that if the uh, project is certain and risks are contained, we may have to recalibrate our equity return expectations. And that's the only way you can uh, get into projects.
0: Right. OK, thank you very much for that outlook. I have one last question for both of you Mm -hmm. before we close. And that would be, what is your main takeaway from the Singapore International Energy Week 2017, Tim?
1: Yeah, well, I think once again, the uh, the organizers have really hit the nail on the head. But what really struck me was uh, the conversations around energy access. That seems to be a part of a lot of the sessions now. This part of the region we know the potential, still 100 million people can't switch on a light bulb. But people are talking about that, they're measuring it and they're now predicting that we will get to 100% access uh, you know, in the next couple of decades. And f- that for me is going to have enormous impacts on GDP. It doesn't just increase the GDP because you're bringing more people into the economy, but also for the people who currently have, there's a lot more uh, marketplace for them. So I see energy as an enabler of GDP as well. And the other thing that's being talked about, and it's now being measured for the first time by International Energy Agency, is digitisation. So this whole leapfrogging of technology, we've seen it in telecoms, I think we'll see it in electricity and power as well. So a lot of the people who haven't currently got electricity probably will never see an electricity bill. Probably, they might not even have a bank account, a physical bank that they're going to pay for their bill. It will all be done on mobile. So I think this digitisation is very exciting for the region. I think you're going to see innovation created here. But the big thing for me is this uh, energy access and uh, you know the, the transparency that uh, is now talked about as a, as a part of the main theme of the conference.
0: Right, great yeah exciting times mm-hmm. yeah. uh, ahead
2: Probably three big takeaways for me. I think uh, one is renewable energy will continue to play a very, very important role, and there's a lot of bullishness amongst all the players, utilities, developers, bankers about it. Second is I think microgrids will play a very, very important role going forward. and same to, to Tim's point about access. Uh, microgrids will increasingly play an important role together with uh, renewable to take an electricity to remote parts of the region. And Cambodia was a great example where the minister was talking about renewable energy giving access to electricity. And third is, of course, innovation and digitization is going to help leapfrog uh, the sector. Uh, and we we do expect a fair bit of potentially disruption happening uh, where new players will come and make uh, electricity available uh, to the masses.
0: Very good. So, Tim, Sharad, thank you very much for your very valuable insights and for your time. And uh, to the listeners uh, out there, thank you very much for listening in. That were Tim Rockel, Director, Global Energy Institute, as well as Sharad Somani, Partner, Global Infrastructure Advisory from KPMG. Thank you for listening to this DNVGL Talks Energy Podcast.
2: To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com/talksenergy.